All right. Hey, uh, one of the things I want to do in, in this session is, uh, and I'm going to be talking uh, down here in, instead of from the stage, is we're going to be uh, talking what I call the uh, Barnabas factor about multiplying leaders. And in, in the midst of this, I want you to feel the freedom to go, whoa, wait a minute, and ask a question or push back on something that, you know, we didn't really have the uh, ability to do in the, the last presentation. And we're, we're going to start with uh, my favorite character in the Bible next to Jesus, and it is Barnabas. And I'm going to walk you through uh, kind of a, a flyby with some, some touchdowns of some highlights from his life. Uh, we all know Barnabas is a guy who shows up in the book of Acts, and the uh, kind of conventional wisdom about Barnabas is he's a pretty cool guy, becomes a friend, a friend and co-worker of the Apostle Paul's. Then they have a big old hairy argument about a guy named John Mark. And I think it's Acts chapter 15. The two of them split. And Paul goes off with uh, now a guy named Luke, who later on writes the book of Acts. And as you read the book of Acts, it's the story, the story, the story. But when he picks up with Luke, it now says we, instead of Paul and names we, we, we start showing up. And Luke ends up writing the uh, uh, Gospel of Luke. And uh, he also writes as a follow-up of that what we know as the book of Acts. Well, because Luke was the uh, contemporary of the Apostle Paul and because of the anointing of the Lord uh, on Paul as an apostle and, and Scripture, we tend to have a knee-jerk reaction that, that he was the right one in the, in the division between him and a guy named John Mark. And to give you a little bit of background on that so when I uh, come to it, we can just know what it's about. What happened was... Uh, John Mark went on, uh, I think it was, forgive me, I'm a pastor, I don't know this, but it was either the first or second missionary journey of Paul. I think it was the first one uh, that Paul and Barnabas went on. And after a couple of uh, kind of rough things happening, he deserted. He said, I got to go home. He was just a young guy. He was kind of an intern. And then later on, Paul and Barnabas decide that uh, God is calling them to go back and visit these churches. And Barnabas says, let's take John Mark. Well, can we be honest here? I know we're in a church building, but can we be honest? When you read the uh, book of Acts and the epistles, don't you sometimes think, my gosh, was Paul one driving guy? Okay. And, and he, he really was in his humanity. That dude was driven. And so he says, there is no way I'm taking John Mark. The clown deserted on us. Why in the world would we do that? And as the scriptures say, such a strong dispute, nice way of saying church split, came between Barnabas and Paul that they went their different directions. And as I said, we know the story of, of Paul because of Luke uh, and the churches that were planted and then the letters that were sent to him. But what a lot of people forget when they make the knee-jerk response that, that Paul was the right one, is what happened with John Mark. Do you realize John Mark, you know today, not as John Mark, you know him as who? Mark, the author of one of the books of the Bible. Also, at the end of Paul's life, he writes a letter to Timothy, and he says, would you send, guess who? John Mark to me. He's necessary. So the whole end of the story ends up being, actually, that probably on that particular dispute, the right one was Barnabas, and the one who made the wrong choice was Paul. And what we got to remember is, of course, all of God's people walk with a limp. They were all sinners. There is no error in the Scriptures, 
everything that we find in our scriptures is without error and is the word of God, but that doesn't mean every decision that the Apostle Paul made was absolutely right. And uh, I look at this one with John Mark, and I look at the end of the story, and I go, Barnabas was a hero in this story. So with that little bit of a background, I, I want to just kind of walk you through, and if, if you want to jot down some of the references, we're going to walk through what I call the Barnabas factor, and then we're going to step back and just get really practical about how you identify and how you develop leaders. But I want to start with that kind of biblical uh, background that takes a, a look at him. The first time we see Barnabas show uh, up in the Bible is in Acts chapter 4, verses 34 to 37. Uh, Acts 4, 34 to 37. And what you have there is, is the realization his name isn't even Barnabas. That's his nickname. I think his, uh, his name is Joseph uh, Cyrene. And uh, what happens is people uh, had uh, come to Pentecost for the Pentecost hol uh, uh, High Holy Days. And uh, at, at that point, the, the Spirit had come upon the 120. And so you had this huge revival in Jerusalem. And everybody assumed that Jesus was going to return real quickly. Now, Jesus had told the 120, you were to go out into all the world. And when the Spirit comes, he's going to give you power so you can reach uh, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the outermost parts of the world. But they decided to stay right in Jerusalem because they thought Jesus was coming back right away. Now, remember, there were no MasterCards, there was no Discovery Card, you couldn't Western Union money. So you'd come from various parts of the world, you'd come for the High Holy Day of Pentecost, you realize the Messiah has come, you're pumped about it, you're told he's going to come back, you assume he's coming back really quickly, so you kind of ignore this thing about Samaria, Judea, and the outermost parts of the world, and you hang there. Guess what happens as you're hanging there? You run out of what? You run out of money. So what do the Christians start to do to one another? They start to sell whatever it is they have so somebody can stay. Now, it's kind of interesting to me. People read the book of Acts about selling whatever they had, and they go, that's what everybody ought to do. I go, well, well, well wait a minute. It's a story here. Let's get the whole context. They were selling the stuff because people ran out of money, and you know what? I don't need my field or my house if Jesus is coming back. So I sell it. Well, we come to chapter 8, and they're still hanging around in Jerusalem. Nobody has left, so the Lord raises up a persecution to send them out. And all but the apostles go out. The apostles are the only ones left in Jerusalem. And finally, the gospel begins in, to spread. Later on, we read from the apostle Paul that he is collecting an offering from all the Gentile churches. Who's his offering that he's collecting for the Gentile churches for? The poor saints in guess what town? Jerusalem, because <laughs> they'd made a very stupid financial decision. They'd sold everything they had, not worried about the future at all, thinking that they didn't need to. And of course, we know now that Jesus had meant, oh, I'm coming back, but it might be 2,000 years. And so actually, they became broke and destitute. So uh, here, here's a key principle. The book of Acts is often descriptive, not prescriptive. It describes what happened. It doesn't necessarily prescribe what should be. And we get in a little bit of trouble because we pick and choose things. So it describes them selling everything they have. And when we read the rest of the story, they're totally broke. <laughs> and so they're taking an offering for them. Now, it's into this context that this guy named Barnabas shows up. 
And in Acts chapter 4, as I mentioned, what he does is he's one of the early ones to sell a field and to take all of the money and meet the needs of other people. And everybody is so impressed that he picks up this nickname called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. But I start there with understanding what the Barnabas factor is, a guy whose fingerprints are all around the New Testament and, and, and the church as we know it today. And the first thing I see about him is his personal generosity. And I want to really emphasize this. When I, when I uh, speak on this to uh, rooms full of church planters or, or pastors, I always try to point out this particular principle, that if I'm not generous with my stuff, I won't be trusted with God's stuff. And I believe the heart of Barnabas as one who empowered others and found leaders and, and, and released them started with that field. And if I am not personally generous, how in the, why in the world would God ever trust me with important stuff if I can't be trusted with menial possessions? I'm not saying we have to sell them all. That's why I pointed out that was kind of ended up being a bad move for the church as a whole. But the window into his heart is huge. And I'm amazed at how many people want to have an impact of empowering other people, but won't empower anything with their finances. With all the excuses we have. Did, did you know the average Christian, when they do surveys, we, we call it a tithe, but you know what the average Christian gives to God's work per year? Any of you have a clue what that number might be? 2%. I call it a tooth. <laughs> and a tithe is what percent? 10. Now let's not argue off the gross or off the net or even worry whether you have to be there or that's a goal to get to. I'm simply saying I learned long ago that the beginning point in my life to be trusted with spiritual riches was to be very generous. And I want to emphasize something else in that generosity. It, you don't be generous so God will give you back more money you are generous for kingdom reasons. There is a myth out there, a lie, that says you give to God so God will give back to you with a bigger shovel. Kind of that name it, claim it, give, you get rich. The, actually, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, it talks about men of a corrupt mind devoid of the truth who, who preach that godliness is a way to financial gain. That's a lie. Because we could be Jobed as well as Abraham. That is his choice. Uh, but generosity does open up the door. So I just want to start with that. Because if we skip that, we've missed the hard issue as we move to all the other issues. And that's a tough mirror to look into. Because if you're generous right now, you're going, preach it, Larry. If you're not generous right now, you've got full, you're full of excuses. Why not? And I, you know, I just here to tell you, that generosity is a starting point of being really used of God in a Barnabas-type way. Now, the second time he shows up is uh, later on in, uh, in Acts chapter 4. And uh, what I'm really impressed by is not his financial uh, generosity, but what he looks for. And I discover when it comes to looking for leaders and people, people to help, he looks for anointing, not pedigree. Sometimes we look at people and we want to know how much Bible they have, how much this they have, how much that, and, and we, it's almost like we're resume-oriented instead of anointing-oriented. 
Churches kill themselves when they do that. You know, they go to the seminaries, they go to whatever, and they want to know how much school, show me your resume. All that really matters is show me your heart and show me your anointing, right? And, and who do I get that from? I get that from the story of him and Paul. Remember, Paul's name was Saul originally, was it not? And Saul is going out persecuting people. In fact, he was part of uh, Acts chapter 8 when the great persecution that drove everybody out happened. He was there holding the coat as they were stoning Stephen, and, and it was all beginning. And then he got letters that allowed him to go to town to town to throw Christians, Jewish Christians, into prison. And as he's on his way to a place called Damascus, the Lord speaks to him out of a bright light that others just saw, didn't know kind of what was going on, but he falls off his donkey, and he hears something pretty terrible. He says, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you? And he hears, I am Jesus. And it's like, oh, crud, because <laughs> this is, a, I'm in a heap of trouble. And uh, he, he has blindness for a series of uh, days. And then uh, uh, a man is told to go pray for him, and then his blindness goes away, and he begins to preach. Well, he needed someone who believed in him despite all the bad that he had done. He needed someone who would look at who he is today, not who he was yesterday, to have any chance of doing ministry. And who did that? Barnabas. Barnabas came alongside and he brought him back to Jerusalem. And as you read the rest of that text, what you find out is none of the other Christians wanted to be around him. They were sure it was a trick. This is the guy who's killed some of our friends. This is a guy who's done, and, and they named all of those bad things, and they wanted nothing to do with him. And Barnabas kept saying, it doesn't matter what he did, it matters who he is. And one of the most important things in finding and raising up leaders is to learn to see who people are, not who people were. And that is very hard to get rid of. We hold the past over them. And yet I have discovered, not universally, but as a, uh, a fairly commonly repeated pattern, is some of God's greatest used people are people who have the biggest garbage in their background. And that garbage is easy to overlook when it didn't hurt you personally, or it was long ago, or it was pre-Christian. But the reality is, in, in, in Saul, now we know him as Paul's case, it had hurt everybody. It was in his zeal of knowledge. He was a guy who knew the Old Testament quite well. He had essentially no excuse for what he did. But Barnabas saw who he was and jumped on it. And people who have around them, lots of other people who can charge the hill and do it well, they do that. Third thing I see about Barnabas is, is what I call defending the right to be different. And I find that in Acts chapter 11 and Acts chapter 15. Defending the right to be different. And that comes from uh, after uh, he, he kind of uh, introduced Paul to everybody and everybody kind of relaxed and said, that Paul's pretty cool. Paul rose up to become one of the elders in the church at Antioch. They list a group of elders, by the way, and Barnabas is number one. That's like, in the Greek language, the order of names or the order of everything is very important. And uh, so when, when uh, uh, Barnabas is mentioned number one, that means he was like chairman of the elder board, okay, or the, the lead pastor or whatever. And when Paul, uh, Saul, is listed last, that means he was the last guy in. He was the bottom of the food chain. So what happens is Paul goes out and, and he does some uh, uh, 
he, he's working there with these guys, and, and, and then they get reports that Gentiles are starting to get saved. And Gentiles are doing church real differently. Like they have church potlucks and they have BLTs at the potluck. Uh, they're, not, they're not making their sons get circumcised. I mean, it's just a whole bunch of stuff that if you think about it, was mind-boggling to Jewish Christians whose Jewish Messiah had come, they believed in, and the Jewish Messiah was promised that Gentiles would be reached, but they assumed those Gentiles would become Jews. So what Barnabas does is he goes and he looks to see what's happening there, and he sees that God is at work, even though God is at work in a way he's not that comfortable with. And he comes back and he defends it, Acts 11, Acts 15, to the church leaders. And one of the marks of people who, whoa, <laughs> uh, one of them, that was interesting. One of the marks of people who find leaders is they don't just find people like themselves. They know what the bottom line is. Back to what I talked about earlier, obedience, spiritual fruit happening, and whether they are comfortable with everything around it, they are defensive of what God does. Uh, I, I'm the obvious age, and I mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm an old hippie. There was a thing called the Jesus Movement. Some of you familiar with that? You know why the Jesus Movement had to take place? Because the established churches were unwilling for a cultural form of Christianity to take place that they weren't comfortable with. It had nothing to do with truth. It had nothing to do with sin. It had everything to do with the music's too loud, you're not dressed up enough, I don't like, I mean, all kinds of things that were 100% comfort zone. And if you take a look at most of the battles in our churches, they are not about truth, they are about comfort zone. And what a Barnabas person does is they defend that which they don't like as long as God is there and as long as truth is there. There is a movement of churches like the well all across the country today that are almost a repeat of the Jesus movement because they had to break out of established forms to be able to be themselves and didn't have enough cheerleaders to say, cool, be you. One of the fun things you wouldn't know about North Coast Church is we have multiple venues. Like last weekend, I think we ran about 7,200 people in attendance. That'd be kids and adults. But our biggest room is smaller than this. It's these 550. Uh, so we have to have like 20 different worship services going. Welcome to San Diego real estate where you can't buy stuff and all that. But um, we've had to be very creative. But one of the fun things we've been able to do is because we have all these things going on with video venues and, and all of that is, is we can have all these different styles of worship. And it is the coolest thing. We have a country gospel service. Please, Lord Jesus, never make me go to it. But we have it. We have one called Traditions where they sing hymns. Lord Jesus, that's number two not to make me go to. Uh, we have one called The Edge that is really edgy. We have one called Last Call that's beyond the edge. Uh, we're able to have a uh, video cafe. But you see what we're doing there? We're able to present the same message, the same truth in styles and ways that lots of people aren't comfortable with, but some people are. And to affirm them in that which works for them without changing the message. Does that make sense to you? That's Barnabas thinking. Barnabas doesn't say, do I like it? He says, does God honor it? And when God honors it, I'm for it. Just don't make me go there. Okay. So that's, he defends the right to be different. Well, 
the fourth thing that he does is he's willing to step aside. He's willing to step aside. He doesn't have to have top billing. As you read through again Acts, and again, Barnabas, we could have walked through the passage, but he kind of, he sprinkled through the book of Acts beginning at chapter four. So it's, it's kind of hard to like look at each passage. That's why I'm just telling the story to you. But uh, remember I said uh, he was number one and Saul was number uh, five or seven, whatever on the list at the bottom. The two of them are called by the Lord to go out and do some ministry. Well, when they go out and do ministry, it's Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. Well, they come to one place and, and uh, uh, they, are, they are confronted and Saul Paul, Saul Paul uh, steps forward and he does a very, very powerful miracle and everybody is freaked. And then he immediately turns around and he preaches this amazing message that leads a ton of people to the Lord. He has just pulled off an incredible ministry revival. And here's what's interesting. From that point on, as you read the book of Acts, it is no longer Barnabas and Paul. It's always Paul and Barnabas. There's not a lot of people who'd be willing to let that happen. But he was so dialed in to what is God doing, he understood it was about God, not about him, and he was willing to take second billing. And a lot of us, when it comes to raising up leaders, whether it's within your business or within a ministry or whatever it is, we're willing to raise up people so long as they don't become a threat to us. We're willing to raise up people so long as they're playing second violin and we're first. But if you're really dialed into the mission, does it matter who gets first billing? It shouldn't. And I love that about Barnabas is he just kind of went along. In fact, the next missionary journey that they went on, it was now Paul saying, hey, Barnabas, you want to go with me? I need a sidekick. And Barnabas goes, cool, as long as we can take John Mark. And then it all broke loose because he couldn't take John Mark. But is that not an incredible guy I just described? From his willingness to give of his stuff, which led later on to give of his prestige, now, here's what you see in, in, in him. His fingerprints, from a human viewpoint, God would have done whatever God was going to do anyway, but from a human viewpoint, let me show you what he was used to do. Without Barnabas, the man I just described, we have no Gentile Christians. Now, how many of you are Gentiles here? Think about that. Without him defending Paul, there is no Paul. Without Paul, we have a whole section of our New Testament that doesn't exist. We'd all be, those of us that are saved, we'd be what we call today Messianic Christians. That'd be the only form of it. Without him, we do not have the gospel of Mark. That's bizarre. No Paul, none of his epistles, and no gospel of Mark. And yet, the average Christian hardly knows the name of Barnabas. We know Peter. We know Paul, and that's why he's my hero. He's a man whose fingerprints were on the lives of many, but his name didn't have to be everywhere. And when it comes to true leadership, missional leadership, wherever it is, it's not about the name. It's about the fingerprints. It's about elevating other people. Does that make some sense to you? Okay. Uh, let me stop on that. Just any questions about him, feedback on that, and then I'm going to just walk through a potpourri of very practical applications that flow out of a Barnabas-type uh, approach to life. But anything I can help clarify about him or that, that story as we 
we, we walk through Acts. Okay. Well, let's go, and uh, we're going to take a look at uh, just a series of things, random thoughts on, on uh, developing leaders. The first one is this. Ministry is addictive. Ministry is addictive. That's a good thing. And, and the, the principle of this is simply that I don't have to ask too much too fast of people. Sometimes when we're trying to find leaders or whatever, we, we, we raise the bar so high that they look and they go, I can't do that. And yet every one of you in the ministry parts that you're involved with, you're, you're involved with it because it's addictive. You, you got involved with touching some lives or whatever, you can go, this is amazing. How fun is this? And you get sucked in more. Uh, and so one of the things I've learned when it's, it comes to, to leadership is just get people in the game. Keep the pieces bite-sized. Make the task easy enough they can do it. Don't expect them to be more responsible than they are if they're all that, not that responsible. Just go ahead and get them in the game. And those who have those gifts and calling, it is addictive. The hook, they'll bite it, it will be set, and it will carry on. And that has allowed us, especially at our church, with we have to have, because of our vintage, we have to have 21 worship bands. <laughs> we have to have all of these, just a zillion volunteers running all of these things. And the only way we've been able to do it is to recognize this principle, uh, the Barnabas type of factors I talked about, but then to realize, you know what? The key is just get them in the game. And once they get in the game, they will discover what it is. Let's not scare people away with too much on the front end. The second principle is this. The ponies are more important than the male. And I'll explain what I mean by that in just a minute. But the ponies are more important than the male. Pretend for a moment that uh, I own Pony Express, back in the old days of Pony Express. Pony Express' job was to deliver mail. But I've already told you the right answer. What's more important if I own Pony Express, my ponies or the mail? Obviously my ponies, right? If I lose some mail, I have some unhappy clients. Uh, we got some problems. But if I burn out my ponies, I've got nothing. Absolutely nothing. And when you were leading any group of people, remember this. Your volunteers are more important than the people they serve. If you've got a company or a business, your employees are actually more important than the people they serve. Because if you're burning them up, churning them up, if they're uh, being pushed too hard, uh, what happens is the stuff you're trying to get done stops getting done. And the natural tendency is to look at it almost the opposite, especially the higher you are in the food chain of any ministry or any organization. You go, it's all about serving our people, and we drive, and we drive, and we drive, and one day we wake up and there's no ponies left. Take care, not of your task, but take care of your people. And then the task will get done. And frankly, that's pretty opposite than what's done in a lot of situations. I'm dealing right now with one business situation where uh, somebody has an incredible business plan. They've got some great employees and they can't understand why everybody quits within 18 months. Well, the reason everybody quits within 18 months is his focus is totally on the task and the customers and he sees the people as just 
Well, there's someone else lined up to do it. They're just tools. I'll get another person. And sure enough, the first group that kind of quit, he filled with another person. The next group, he kind of filled with another person. And then pretty soon, the word on the street is, you don't want to work there. The quality of people he gets is not quite as good. And all, what he's basically been doing, he's been killing off his ponies. But for a while, he was able to find another pony to fill in. So you're leading a, a children's program. It's not just about getting all your workers there. It's about making sure your workers are having a good time. It's about making sure your workers, all their needs are met. And then they'll keep coming back over and over and over again. The ponies are more important than the male. Beware of high passion, high contentious, or argumentative people. Beware of high passion, argumentative people. Now, here's a weird thing in the Christian community. And you, you can take this and then apply it to your situation. I'm going to actually uh, illustrate as I talk to senior pastors on this. I often talk to them about their board or their staff. There's a weird thing in the Christian community. When somebody is contentious, you know what I mean by contentious, argumentative, feisty. When they are contentious for the right things, we make them a hero. Aren't they? Right? Oh man, that person is on fire for God and they hate sin. So if they're out there feisty and contentious for the right things, they can be a hero in Christian circles. Well, it's interesting to me in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul describes the uh, qualifications to be an overseer, one is in leadership. One of the things he says is the person must not be contentious, period. Now, if a person is contentious for the right things, are they contentious? Help me out. They are. But we ignore that verse because, well, they're contentious against sin. That's pretty cool. Well, here's a problem. Feisty people fight because that's their nature. Pit bulls bite because they're pit bulls. And when you get around you someone who's all on fire and argumentative and feisty for all the right things because they hate sin so much, sooner or later you're going to get on the wrong side of them on some issue, and guess what they're going to do to you? The same thing they do to all their other enemies. That's why he says have nothing to do with them. I know a couple of people who have scars on their face because they were bitten by pit bulls that don't bite. Literally, it's a sad thing. In each case, a family member had a dog that is basically bred to fight. And they said, well, no, no, I have raised this dog differently. And up until the point of the bite, in each case, the dog had never bitten anybody or never done anything crazy. The owner was absolutely convinced in these two cases that this dog would never, ever do such a thing. It is gentle. You ought to see it around kids, whatever. And in each case, I, I'm not quite sure exactly what happened, but either the person reached in a way that shocked the dog or some hormonal thing kicked in or whatever, but the pit bull did what pit bulls do, and everybody was shocked. Well, I look at that, and, and you know, prior to that, you just, you're talking. Oh, you know, I say, get rid of it. Oh, no, you don't understand. Oh, get rid of it. Oh, no, you don't the, All of the defenses, because, you know, he only barks at strangers. And then suddenly, we can't back up and do a, a do-over when he bit my niece. 
That's what happens when you get feisty people and you allow them to be in Christian leadership. They're feisty because that's their nature. And they will bite others that the moment there's a disagreement. Now, not all of you are going to be in roles where that applies. But I want to tell you, even in your friendships, what you look up to and what you get around, be very careful of angry, ticked off Christians, even if they're angry and ticked off for the right things. It will get you in trouble. And we think we're defending righteousness, but we're disobeying God. Uh, in 2 Timothy, in fact, it might be worth looking at because this one applies just to how we live and our attitudes. Um, 2 Timothy 2. Starting at verse 24, it speaks why you don't want that kind of person around you. Frankly, it speaks to why you might not want to listen to that kind of person on the radio or read their books or <laughs> listen to their whatever it would be. Uh, just a warning to you because it, it tells us right here, the Lord's servant, literally in the Greek, the old King James says bond servant, the one totally sold out to God. 2 Timothy 2, starting verse 24, here's what he says. He must not quarrel. Hmm. Instead, he must be kind to who? What's your Bible say? All or everyone. Able to teach or instruct. Now catch this. Not what? Resentful. Can we be honest? Is there a bit of resentment in the Christian community against the sin in our world? Quite a bit especially by the angry, quarrelsome, for God defenders. I call them spiritual watchdogs. They're out there barking for Jesus. Instead, verse 25 says, here's how it's to be approached. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct. So I can't be resentful. I've got to be kind. I've got to be gentle in my instruction. Why? I'm hoping that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. And then in this last verse, I get a description of who he's talking about. Who's this person that I'm to be kind to? I can't be resentful, and I must gently instruct. Well, hopefully they'll come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. This is describing how you and I are to respond to someone who is doing the will of Satan. Not resentful, kind, gently instructing. That is real opposite of what's being done in much of the Christian community today. And it helps to explain why we get separated more and more and we shout and scream but don't really get listened to. It was, it was fascinating to me just to pick one thing uh, that's real current. Uh, there's a, a street where I live called uh, College and Oceanside Boulevard. It's a very busy street. And right before the election, you know, the Prop 8 thing was going on. And there were all of these people holding all of these signs, yes on 8, and then the other corner, no on 8, you know, honking and waving and all this stuff and screaming and yelling. And, and it was really interesting to me because I, I kept thinking for both sides, and, 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 you know, and obviously there's a Christian viewpoint on that. So I'm just talking about communication here. But on both sides, I kept thinking, I can't imagine anybody driving down the street suddenly goes, oh, yes, and changes their mind. I just love the way that guy yelled at me and pointed at his sign. I, 
Change my vote. <laughs> right? But we feel like we're doing, I mean, on, on, and what struck me is this is human nature. Both sides of that issue felt like they were advancing their cause. And in reality, they were encouraging everybody who was already on their side, and they were annoying everybody they disagreed with. So when it comes to our impact on the world, it's important that we have those qualities. And that's why, as you build a team, you never want somebody who has lots of good qualities that are killed by anger and resentment, even if it's anger and resentment, it's sin. Avoid them like the plague. Um, Understand this when you build a team. Excellence and empowerment are always in tension. When it comes to finding leaders and really releasing them, one of the things you're going to discover is there's always a tension on getting it done excellently and empowering other people to do it. Uh, in the ideal world, you'd empower people and they'd be excellent, right? But the reality is no one's as good the first time as they are the fifth time at whatever they do. And that one of the things that will hold you back from developing a team of people around you, whatever your ministry is, is when your first question is, who does it best? If they can't do it as well as me, I better do it. You never raise up anybody. You can't have it done so poorly that the thing falls apart. But if you're aiming at always the best of the best, you'll never build a team. Because the people you're developing, of course, are not going to do it as well at the beginning as later on. And that keeps a whole lot of people from being developed. Uh, for us to have our 20 bands at North Coast Church, what that means is the quality of any worship service is never as high as if we put our all-star band together. But if we always insisted we've got to do our best for God, guess what? We couldn't have 20 bands. We'd have two bands. So you have to learn to say, you know what? Excellence and empowering are at tension. I'm going to live with that tension, and I'm never going to let it be so bad that it kills the thing, but I'm not going to insist that everything always be done right. It just doesn't work that way. To build a team... You have to have a plan to make room, what I call make room at the table. Make room at the table. For some of you, this won't fit at all. For others of you, it will fit totally. But what do I mean by room at the table? When you start any ministry, like here at the well, some of your ministries are small and have grown large and they're going to grow larger. You have a group of people that kind of start out together and you're at the table. And then somebody new comes. And you make a little more room at the table. Then somebody new comes. You make a little more room at the table. And pretty soon you're starting to look at somebody and say, you know what, you need to sit in the kids' table because there's no more room at the table here. Well, here's what happens if there's no more room at the table. If the first one there always gets to stay there because it's by tenure, you'll die because some really gifted and good people are going to come later on. And if they can't sit at the table because they came too late, guess what they're going to go do? They'll go to some other table. I call it the young eagle principles. Young eagles are made to fly. And if you've got some young eagles around you, you have to let them fly. You can't say stay in the cage because you got here late. And I, I discover when it comes to finding leaders and empowering them, one of the things that I have to do in my leadership role at North Coast Church is constantly be making room at the table and occasionally asking someone who's sitting at the big table to go sit at the kid's table because this new kid really is a lot more 
gifted than, than you are, which goes back to the heart of Barnabas. Does it matter as long as you're getting your food which table you're at? That's why one of the things I'm always starting with when I build a team is character. Because if I start with skill set, I can have great skills, but when those skills aren't needed anymore, those, that person can poison the whole team because they have to have their position, they have to have their power, they have to have their place at the table. They'll kill everything. I'd rather have a little less skills and a lot more character, and I can build a team around that. Ultimately, team building is the power of the many. And when the many all pull together, they get a whole lot more done than a whole bunch of individuals doing their little silo. And that's why I started this thing today with you, with Barnabas. Great character study. Just read through the book of Acts numerous times and say, what little kind of implications and insights do I see about him? And then put that into your... If you're buried in the way you deal with your spouse, if you've got kids, it's incredible to start asking questions. How does that impact the way I deal with my kids? If you've got employees or you've got volunteers working with you here saying, how does that impact the way I deal with them? It, it is amazing what that will do. Because if you can be a Barnabas, it's amazing how broadly your fingerprints can be on things. But if you insist on being either hyper-control uh, or, or not following those principles. You can build one nice little silo right here, but nothing else grows beyond it. It's just, it's kind of ended. Let me stop and take, we're just about done right now, but let me stop and take any questions you might have on, on the stuff I've, I've talked about, give you a chance for uh, any feedback. Yeah. Back to pit bulls, Okay. Great question. Back to pit bulls. Paul says not to be contentious, but he uses some strong language. There are two things. The pit bull thing, remember I said be careful of people who are contentious about the right things. And what they are is they're angry at sin in the world. Okay? If you notice Paul's letters where he writes angrily, uh, first of all, it's always addressed to Christians. It's not addressed to non-Christians. See, there's a really interesting thing. If, to be candid, the Christian community today is furious at the non-Christian world, especially parts of it that are carrying out the will of the enemy. And they are carrying out the will of the enemy. We're furious at them. But the New Testament doesn't show anger at the lost. It shows grace and mercy. It wins them over. It shows anger at sin in the camp. And by the way, it's the same thing with Jesus. Did Jesus say some hard things? You bet he did. He kicked tail, but it was always against the religious people, not the pagans. We flipped it. 1 Corinthians 5, it says, no, you judge the world out there. I mean, you don't judge the world out there. You leave that to God, but you judge sin within the camp. We flipped it. We ignore sin within the camp all day long while we're angry and livid about sin in the world. And that's why the world doesn't listen. Have any of you been converted uh, on any opinion about anything by somebody who didn't like you, didn't respect you, and you knew it? Of course not. If you don't like me and don't respect me and yell at me, I don't listen. I get defensive. I shut you down. So that would be my answer, answer to that.
Yes. Okay, to contend for the faith in Jude is a, is a matter of doctrine, defend true doctrine, and again, within the church. Even, even the passage I mentioned earlier in Revelation, he says, you know, one of the things I really like about you, you've tested the false apostles and you've called them false, and you've removed them from you. So contending for the faith is an internal thing of truth, but even that is done, done graciously. It doesn't have to be, you know... Uh, you know, killing one another, as it were. And, and I'd have to look to see whether, I doubt the word contend for the faith, though in English it's got the same root, but I don't think in the Greek language those are the same words. It basically means to defend the faith, but I don't have a Greek text in front of me to be sure, so take that with a grain of salt. Do you know that one? No, I knew Brad wouldn't know either. I wanted to show that. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, New American uses quarrelsome and uh, a contentious, quarrelsome person. That's a really good translation, the uh, NAS. Um, so it's, it's, it's feisty and argumentative. That's what that word means. It's, it's one who likes the battle. So I think the old King James used pugnacious. <laughs> that was the word. Is there a place for them still, a pit bull? That was a question. Did you hear it? Uh, my answer, actually, at North Coast Church, there's not a place for them. I mean, they can sit there, but there's no place to service. I will step in and remove them because I know sooner or later they're going to be pit bull about something else. You know, I've been, at, I've been at North Coast 28 years, so I got, you know, plenty of scars to prove. Some of these things I'm teaching you, I've learned by dumb tax. It's not I'm smart. It's just I made stupid moves. You live long enough, you got enough stupid moves to be smart. Um, and I learned this one the hard way because I was bit in my first youth ministry job and then the couple first few years at North Coast Church, I got all excited about some people who were kind of Bible scholars and, and lived holy lives and were just ticked off at the world. And I saw them as, wow, am I glad to have them on my team? And then I don't even remember what the issues were, but there were a couple of things where we saw things not eye to eye and they turned on me. It's like, whoa, what happened here? And that's when I began to learn Paul knew what he was saying when he said, keep these people away. And the word is presbyteros, elders is what we call it today. But the word literally means just oversight. Any position oversight, I keep away from them. The other thing is I don't listen to them. You know, there's a few media figures who are that way. I avoid them because all they do is stir me up with their anger. It's like, I don't need that. Same reason I don't watch uh, certain movies that, you know, stir me up sexually or what. I just go, I don't need these things. Why do I need the poison in my life? A couple more, and then we're, we're supposed to be done about now, right? So, were there? Yes, one more. Okay. Then how does that fit with a person's pedigree as opposed to an anointing? How does it work with a person in the body, um, believing God can transform their heart and their life? They might have a history, but... Okay, good question. What do we do... With, with those kind of people. I'm not saying you write them off, put them in a box and seal the box. I'm saying I just say, you're not on my team in these roles. As you begin to change, fine. Or I will try to have conversations with you to change. So it's just as long as you're going to be that way, then I'm going to keep separate from you. So it doesn't mean I've written you off as, as you're stuck because, yeah, people do grow. Uh, I, have, I have some friends who would have been pit bulls and now they're poodles. 
you know, it, it, it can happen. Jesus does that. So does that help? Okay. Brad.